Friends, good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we already sense the weight, uh, the significance of a morning like this, and we pray for your ongoing help in processing uh, what could be one of the bigger issues uh, that we ever talk about. We pray that you will give us keen insight, that you will give us an eager, submissive heart to your word. Would you sharpen our minds? Would you mature us? Would you grow us as we come to the scriptures together? We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You know, the issue of abortion and the sanctity of human life is one of the most debated, and I agree with Pastor Nick, one of the most important issues of our day. In fact, I think as Christians, we will be at least in part defined and remembered this generation of Christ followers for the way that we address or fail to address the issue. Now, to begin with, I I do think it's important and it's worth mentioning that Christians need to be sensitive to all the complexities and nuances of this type of issues. We ought to, to the best of our ability, do our homework on fetal development. We ought to be sensitive and compassionate to the young woman who finds herself in the midst of an unplanned pregnancy, often alone, uh, often confused, wrestling with a wide variety of questions. And at the same time, we absolutely must see and appreciate the deep realities about the intrinsic value of every human life, including the unborn, the wonder of it all. For example, at just five weeks old, the baby's heart the size of a a poppy seed, if you can imagine that, is the first organ to function. At six weeks, the the basic structure for the entire central nervous system, so the brain and the spinal cord have formed, the skeleton is in place. Just a week or two later, the baby's reflexes are functioning, so it can respond to pain. This is just eight weeks now. At 10 weeks, the baby's brain produces almost a quarter of a million new neurons per minute. We could go on and on listing statistics, but with the statistics aside for just a moment, I think we can say that anyone who's seen an ultrasound, especially a 3D ultrasound, can attest to the the pure wonder and value of that little baby, that human person, her own skeletal structure, her own brain, her own unique DNA. As I was thinking about Roe v. Wade, it's hard to imagine it's almost 40 years ago. I mean, that's a long time. That's a long time that this conversation has been taking place. And with that, I think it's really important that this issue not become a tired issue for Christians. And there's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons for that. One is that what we believe about the value of every human person is not an isolated issue. It doesn't stand by itself. It has massive implications on other things like social justice, racial reconciliation, or or, or even maybe more down to earth, just how we treat our neighbor. So this is not an isolated issue. The other reason I think it's so important that we keep this on our radars and close to us is that what we believe about the sanctity of human life and what we believe about God are linked together. They're tied up and inseparable from one another. So you see, this isn't merely a scientific or a cultural conversation. It is a theological conversation. We might say it this way. 
if we are going to have the right view about life, and not just the sanctity of life, but all of life, then first, we've got to get the right view on God. And to get the right view, why don't we meet together in the Psalms? We're continuing our series. Turn to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 139 this morning. Psalm 139. I don't have a pew Bible number. Anybody have a pew Bible? They want to shout out the number. 521. Thanks, Brian. 521 in the Pew Bibles. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you. Uh, We want that to be our gift to you. Uh, Psalm 139, along with Psalm 119 and Psalm 23, one of the most beautiful pieces uh, of Hebrew poetry in the Psalter. I'll read the entire Psalm first, so stick with it as we read through, and then we'll circle back and look at the passage in more detail. Psalm 139 and verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. If we're going to get a right view on life, then we've got to get the right view on God. So, what's the view that David gives us here? We're going to look at four attributes, four qualities of God that he lays out for us that that really follow the structure of the psalm. Four main stanzas, so four primary attributes or aspects of God. The first is that God is all-knowing. God knows absolutely everything, and including, and especially in this passage, us. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. Verse three, you search out my path, my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God knows when you 
wake up in the morning. He knows how many times you've hit your snooze button. He knows when you walk downstairs and take your first sip of coffee. He knows what you're eating for breakfast. He knows where you're going for lunch. He knows what activities your kids have tonight, even when your schedule is all goofy and confused. God knows. He knows everything. Even more, verse 4 points out to us that God knows what we're saying. Not only what we do, but what we say. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. It means he not only knows what we say, he actually knows our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. Every crazy idea you have that you haven't shared with your boss yet, every, every hypothetical conversation, every longing, he sees it all. You know, I was thinking about this in uh, in. 2017, we have a default response uh, when we don't know something. What do we do typically? We Google it. Yes, we pull out our phones and Google it. Interesting time that we live in. Google, uh, believe it or not, is now processing 40,000 search queries every second. 40,000, 80,000, 120,000. Translates to over 3.5 billion searches per day. That's a lot of knowledge, albeit some of it false. But that's a lot of information. Listen, God does not Google. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need to ask Siri or Alexa or any of the other robo-computers that are out there because his knowledge is so complete, wrap your mind around this, he actually never increases in knowledge. He never grows in his knowledge of anything because his knowledge is infinite. It's perfect. You know, I think about an implication for this idea that God knows everything. And that's that if he really knows everything, then that also means that he knows best. And this is so difficult for me to wrap my mind around. When I am confronted with the reality that God has spoken to so clearly, do I really find myself trusting that that is what's best for my life? Or do I find myself kind of bucking against what God knows to be true and knows what's best ultimately for me? If I am in need of counsel, is, is my default response to think, well, what, is, what does God think about this? Or do I just kind of figure it out on my own and then later consult with the all-knowing God of the universe? I mean, the logic is so flawed, and yet that, that's very often our, our response. Because God knows everything, it means he knows what's best for us. The other interesting aspect about God's knowledge here is that it's not only comprehensive, it's also personal. He's not just a supercomputer. Oh, Lord, you know me, he says in verse 1. Look at the intimacy of verse 5. You hem me in before and behind. You, you lay your hand upon me. God not only knows everything, he knows you. You know, I think about one of the greatest needs and desires of the human heart is the desire to be known, truly known, and yet so much of what we know about one another is superficial in nature, isn't it? I mean, I think this is part of the frustration uh, and fascination with everything that's happening in social media right now, right? We want to be known. We want to put our life out there in such a way that someone likes us or someone comments about us. We don't want to be isolated. We want to be known. And yet, in these types of situations, this is really not our truest self, is it? It's kind of a fabricated version of ourself. What if it were possible to be truly known, the deepest part of you. What, what Psalm 39 is telling us is it is possible. And this is not some self-interested bystander we're talking about. The God of the universe knows you. 
And so I hope if you walked in here this morning feeling invisible or insignificant, that you are encouraged by the wonderful security that comes that God knows you, knows everything about you. We're starting to, to get the picture here, this picture of God that's going to drive us then to a, a right view of life. So let's continue on. David moves forward showing us that, that God not only knows everything, he's also ever-present. Not bound by time or space, God is ever-present with his people. Look at this rhetorical question in verse 7 that he asks. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer, obviously, is, is nowhere. And he illustrates this using some of the most beautiful imagery in the Bible. Verses 8 and 9 are worth a second look. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, then you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. In other words, if I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. If I go left, you're there. If I go right, you're there. And, and by implication, you're everywhere in between. The presence of God in this sense is inescapable. What's more is that David is talking about a lot more than just kind of a, a spatial presence, right? Sharing the same space in, in the way that maybe this, this pulpit is sharing the room with us. I mean, it's here, but it's not really here. Let me put it to you this way. Wives, have you ever been in a conversation with your, quest, your husband, you ask them a question, and all of a sudden you get this kind of glazed over look in return? And they're thinking in their minds, I've got to think of something clever to say really quickly to make, me, make her think that I've actually been paying attention to her. I've never done that, but I just hypothetically. <laughs> they're there with you, but they're not really there with you. On the other side of that, and all of my failures in marital communication, on the other side of that, Sarah and I have this little phrase that we will say uh, to each other, typically when we are going through uh, something gross or difficult in life. We'll look at each other and we'll say, I'm with you. I'm with you. And what we mean when we say that is not we're just going to share the car ride together. What we mean is I'm standing with you, Right? I'm not going to allow you to go through this by yourself. We're, we're together on this. I'm with you. This is kind of what it means to say that God is ever-present with his people. Not only spatial in nature, but relational in nature. You see the tenderness of this in verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even through, this is amazing, even through the darkness and distress of verses 11 and 12. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me. The light about me is like the night. It's so bad. But even the darkness is not dark to you. Think about what this means, friends, in the darkest, deepest part of your life. When you wake up tonight with that all too familiar 50 pound weight of anxiety on your chest, thinking about the challenges that you're having with a teenage son or daughter, thinking about something going on at work, maybe it's your job security, when you are up at 3 a.m. this morning and you feel the darkness coming in surrounding you, please, please remember, God is with you. Not just spatially, he is with you. This is one of the great blessings of being a child of God. He is with you in a relational and present way. 
Or maybe, you know, I was thinking about this, maybe you're not going through a difficult time. This also is really helpful if you are just kind of grinding away in life, if you feel like you're just kind of on this cosmic rat wheel, like why should I wake up in the morning? What am I doing? All I do is laundry and wipe noses all day. All I do is bounce from meeting to meeting. When you think about the idea that you are living with an all-knowing, ever-present God, things really change. Think about what J.I. Packer says when you find yourself in this situation. He says, living becomes an awesome business when you realize you spend every moment of your life in the sight and company of God. He is ever-present. He's particularly present in the lives of his people. So to this point, we have seen that God is all-knowing, that he's ever-present, and we're kind of climbing like a big theological mountain, right? I mean, these are big ideas. God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. But we've actually yet to reach the pinnacle of this mountain. Thirdly, we see from Psalm 139 that God is also all-powerful. This God possesses unlimited creative power, and he uses that creative power to give both life and purpose in life. We see it in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful, wonderful are your works. Here David, as clearly as he can, is connecting the creation of human life to the superintending, powerful hand of God. And if there is a place in the Bible that makes the clearest argument for the sacredness of all human life, it's right here in Psalm 139. The inward parts of verse 13 here refer to something beyond physiology, beyond biology. He's talking here about the unseen part of a person, our conscience, our psyche, our mind. Verse 16 says that God sees the unformed substance of a person. This is, this is literally a, a single Hebrew word that would equate to a modern embryo. And what's fascinating is David is talking about himself in the same way he'd talk about himself in the present. The personhood of David was established right here in the womb. Now, if that weren't enough, that weren't convincing enough, we see that God also gives purpose to the unborn person. As verse 16 continues on, his eyes see our unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I received uh, a very, very difficult phone call on Friday from someone in our church uh, who had just about an hour or so before uh, talked to their daughter and got the news that she had miscarried their child. This was her fourth or fifth miscarriage. And, and I'll be honest, as, I, as I'm plunging in to the truth of God's word that says God has purpose for every person, including the unborn, and that our days are not without purpose, I was, I was kind of smacked down with this news. There are so many unanswered questions in these types of tragedies, so many questions that I do not have the answer to. But I, I do know this. I do know that that baby's life was not without value or purpose. The details are knowledge that belongs only to the Lord. Knowledge, as David says earlier in this psalm, that's just too high. But what we do know, what we do know is whether it's 10 weeks old or 100 years old, every human person possesses inerrant value and inerrant purpose given by God. This has amazing implications, not only on the unborn, but the child with special needs, 
Parents, as you feel like you're limping along raising this child, if there is any purpose in all of it, there is. Or the elderly person, maybe the shut-in, who feels like purpose has run dry. Not according to Psalm 139. This is a gift from God. Think about the implications that this idea has on who you're going to interact with this week. That coworker, for example, that uh, just gets under your skin, or the annoying family member. Listen, I know you love to hate them. I know. I know they drive you crazy. But to view them as, as a brilliant creation of an all-powerful God really changes something about the way we interact with them. Or students, I see a few students in the room this morning. Maybe it means reaching out to that student who falls outside of a particular social group or who has been labeled a certain direction or who's just having a hard time connecting. Rather than seeing them as an object of scorn uh, or game, uh, to reach out to them and to have a conversation recognizing that they really are a brilliant creation of an all-powerful God. There's a, a little song right now that our three-year-old is singing. Uh, and it's adorable the first time. <laughs> but um, anyway, the song is this. You probably recognize it. My God is so big. Do you know it? So strong and so mighty. There's nothing God cannot do for you. No, it, this is distilled down, folks. This is Psalm 139, isn't it? Our God is so big. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He's all-powerful. And David has just been methodically marching us up this high theological summit to, to show us that, that our problem, our problem, is not so much a low view on life as it is a low view on God. If this, this psalm, this song of David had a chorus, it might go something like this. Only a high view of God will lead us to the right view of life. Only a high, lofty view of God can provide us with clarity for life. Only when we see God as all-knowing and ever-present and all-powerful can we really start to think clearly about ourselves. I think this is a little bit about what John Calvin was getting at when he talked about how the knowledge of God and the knowledge of human people are, are tied up together. Only a high view of God can produce or provide the right view on life. Look at, look at the way that David responds at this point in the journey. Verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Now the word he uses here for precious is not typically what we mean when we say precious. We see a puppy and we say, oh, isn't he precious? And they are. But here David is communicating value, precious priceless, immeasurable value. So the question is, do you really value God? When you find yourself lacking knowledge, do you run to the wonderful counsel of God's word to be informed on God's perspective on this issue, or do you just kind of figure it out on your own? If you are lacking companionship, do you find yourself running to harmful relationships first, or taking great joy and contentment in the abiding presence of God. If you are lacking in strength, uh, do you ring up the powerful social connections to kind of get you out of that rut, or do you cast your weakness upon a God who is all-powerful, who really can do something about your circumstance? This is what it means 
to value God because only a high view of God can provide the right view on life. Now, I'm not sure if you caught it the first time we read through, but there's one more attribute of God that David lays out for us, and truthfully, it feels a little dissonant. It it almost feels embarrassing, but I want us to wade in to this fourth aspect of God that we see, and that's that he is ever holy. God is perfectly holy, righteous, and just. Buckle up. Here we go. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with a complete hatred. Some of you are like, man, we are a long ways away from if I take the wings of the morning. I mean, we're a long ways away from that. What, what happened here? What's going on here? What we see is David calling out for God to execute his justice on the wicked. He's not talking about personal vindication. Right? Verse 20, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. So these are sins against the Lord. And he's asking God to vindicate himself according to his holiness. And if we want a high view of God, the high view that will give us the right view on life, then we we just can't sweep the holiness of God under the rug. We need it, in fact. It's the existence of a holy God that allows David or any of us, frankly, to identify and advocate for any moral good. And in this regard, we should. We should identify racial injustice or the abuse of children or murder as nothing less than evil. We can only do that because we, a holy God exists. I'll give you another example. Uh, this, is, this is Asher Nash. Right? He's amazing. Look at this guy. You may have caught this in the news over the holiday season. Asher made news because uh, he did some modeling for the company Oshkosh Bagosh. But the story of Asher Nash, as it goes, before he, he came into contact with, uh, with the folks over at Oshkosh, was actually rejected by a different agency because the criteria for the ad, according to this agency, did not specifically say they were looking for a special needs child. His mother continued to advocate for him, and, and ultimately we see the beauty of this child coming through in this picture. But we have to ask ourselves, What gives us the right to say that Asher Nash should be treated with dignity and respect? I mean, why shouldn't we just march him out into the streets along with every other special needs child and tell them to fend for themselves? Postmodernism can't answer that question with all of its ebbing and flowing around relativism and morality. Naturalism can't answer that question either, right? Only the strong survive. But a biblical worldview with at its center a holy, righteous God can answer that question humbly and reasonably. Humbly is important because as we see from David, he's, he's longing for righteousness, not just out there, not just God, look at them. This, this is humble, introspective interaction with God. Look at verse 23. He also says, search me, O God. And know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. So he's not only looking out, he's looking in. 
for God to vindicate his justice and righteousness. I wonder how often we are praying prayers like this. Search me, O God. Not enough in speaking personally. And yet, this type of introspective humility is vital if we're going to maintain that high view of God. And it's a high view of God that provides us with the right view on life. Now, before we leave Psalm 139, if we have really allowed the whole of this passage to wash over us, there is a colossal elephant in the room that we've got to talk about. If God is really all-knowing, then that means he knows even our deepest, darkest, wicked thoughts. If God is really all-present, everywhere present, then that means he is present with us as we commit our most self-indulgent sin. If he is all-powerful and ever-holy, then that means that he is able and poised actually to do something about it. In this regard, this is a whole new spin on Psalm 139. In this sense, a high view of God is not only comforting, it is terrifying. We don't want God's presence with us all the time. I mean, we don't want him to know everything about us. We can't say, search me, O God, look within. Why? Because we know what he'll find in there. No, instead, we we very often are much more like Adam and Eve who, when they rebelled against God, want to run away from him and to to hide in the woods and to cover our humiliation and our sin and our shame. We get the sense that someone is watching you. Not a very comfortable feeling, is it? Sitting next to a high schooler at the Canfield basketball game this Friday, uh, I think he's maybe a middle schooler, and man, he was getting after it with his phone. He had this app where he was zooming in on people across the stadium, and he was taking pictures and putting in fun little comments and sending them to his friends. I mean, that's an uncomfortable feeling. The problem is he didn't know that I was watching him. <laughs> Another example, have you ever watched your kids play when they don't know you're watching? Maybe through the slit of a doorway, you're watching them, they're going all out, full tilt imagination, and then they turn and see you, and they say, What? Stop looking at me. Why? Because they're embarrassed. They feel like if they haven't already done something wrong, that they will do something wrong. And this is the dilemma that Psalm 139 creates for us, right? On one hand, we're built for the presence of God. We crave it. And yet, we recognize that if God is holy, then him coming into our space is terrifying. On on one hand, we need to have this high view of God, but we know what it means. It means we are totally exposed, totally vulnerable. So how in the world does all of this get squared away? There's one way, and only one way. It's a way that David never fully realized in his life, but we do. Colossians chapter one. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things created through and for him, and through him, here we are, to reconcile to himself all things making peace, how? By the blood of his cross, and here's where it gets personal, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled by his death in order, hear this, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The reason, the only reason that we can live in the presence of God and not be obliterated by his holiness The reason that we can call out to God for both his care and his justice without being condemned by our own sin is because of Jesus. 
He is the only one that can hold all of this together in tension. And here's why. Because Jesus, the agent of creation, the one through whom all things were made, actually entered into his creation, his mother's womb. He even experienced the darkness of verse 12 in Psalm 139. It's because Jesus, perfect in righteousness, took the judgment and punishment set aside for the men of blood. (laughs) The judgment that David calls out for. Jesus takes that judgment upon himself. And it's because Jesus, please hear this good news, by his sacrificial death is able to present us holy and blameless before God. Do you know what that means? That means when you say, search me, O God, the first thing he sees is not your sin, but the righteousness of his son. This is amazing. This is is the, the good news of the gospel. It means that God can know you all the way down to your deepest, darkest part and still love you if you are united to Jesus by faith. It means that God will be present with you to the very end, that no sin is too great for the grace of God in Christ to overcome, even as we said earlier, if there's been participation, if you've had an abortion, if you participated in an abortion, the grace of God is powerful, not only to save, to present you holy and blameless before God. This is amazing. This is, this is the highest view of God that we can possibly have. Certainly, there's an encouragement. If you've been wrestling with this idea about what it means to be a Christian, it's not simply to be a good person. It's not to do enough good work so that God will love you. It's to fall humbly at the feet of Jesus and to recognize that the message of Psalm 139 is not only that we need a high view of God, but that we need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior, to profess faith in him, to turn your life over to him as Lord. A high view of God provides us with the right view on life. And if you want the highest view of God, look to Jesus. With that, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the vast, immeasurable, high picture of you that we have seen from Psalm 139. It also scares us because we recognize that it means we are vulnerable We are exposed. And yet, at the same time, as we place our faith in the Lord Jesus, we recognize that we also have an advocate before you, one who can present us holy and blameless before you, one that can hold all of these truths together in tension. So we recognize him as our God and our king, and I pray that in these next moments, we we would recognize you for the great and truly awesome God that you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.